1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 22 is our text for this morning. The title of the message is, How Unwavering Our Hope. Before we dive in this morning, let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time of worship. Pray with me, would you? Father, we in awe bow before you this morning. We bring our hearts, we bring our minds, we bring our thoughts We bring our wills and we decisively lay them at the altar of worship. God, we pray that you would consume us this morning with the passion of Christ as displayed in his sinless life, in his victorious death and resurrection as he stood in our stead. The sinless lamb of God became our sacrificial substitute. He died, was buried in a human tomb, but yet arose on the third day. Jesus, you sit in heaven this very moment at the right hand of your father as our mediator, as our advocate, As our great high priest, you are our living Savior. Lord, we thank you for that. Help us to glorify you and honor you in everything that we do this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Consider this question with me this morning, friends. What if? What if? It's a question that we ask ourselves often. Sometimes daily, even subconsciously, we begin to play through the what-ifs in our hearts and minds. But what-if is not a new question. We've been asking the what-if question since the dawn of time. Matter of fact, all through redemptive history, all through your Bible, you find the answer to the question, what-if. It's a biblical question. As a matter of fact, it's a question that we'll find here in our text this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 22. Seven times in these verses, Paul uses the little word, if. He's raising the question of contrary assumption in order to show us how much hangs. How much hangs on the bodily resurrection of our Lord. And so Paul will play the devil's advocate for a few verses in our text this morning. In order to teach us what matters most, we need to know that Paul isn't simply playing games with us. He's not trying to waste our time debating trivial matters. We need to be reminded what an astounding miracle lies at the very heart of our faith, the resurrection. And so Paul begins by saying, well, what if it isn't true? What if it didn't really happen? What if we don't have a living Savior today? Paul will bring us to the edge, to the cusp of despair, and then he will pivot our attention gloriously to the reality of Christ's resurrection and what that means for us today as believers. Brothers and sisters, let me encourage you to stand this morning if you have the ability as we read God's word. This is Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 15, 20, 12 through 22. And these are the words that he pens. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. 
And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ... We have hope only in this life. We are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by one man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our great God stands forever. You may be seated. Two main points on your outline, a handful of sub-points under each. would encourage you to take notes this morning. I promise you that you will listen better if you attach the tip of your pen to paper. Point number one this morning is this. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is empty. Write that down. If Christ has not been raised, then A, our preaching is empty. Paul says that. Look at verse 14. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Friends, listen to me. Listen to me loud and clear. If Jesus is a dead corpse in the ground... If his body is cold in the dirt, if he has not been raised from the dead, then preaching is a useless enterprise. All of our labors to teach, all of our labors to rightly divide the word of God are to no avail. Consider the word vain for just a moment. The word translated vain in verse 14, it's the Greek word kinos. Perhaps a more precise translation of that Greek word is empty or without content. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is empty or it is without content. As a matter of fact, Paul used the exact same word, kinos, to speak about Jesus' incarnation, Jesus taking on human flesh in Philippians 2.7. He, Jesus taking the very form of a servant, being made in the likeness of men, emptied himself. He emptied himself. Kinos. If Jesus Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is empty. It's without content. It's to no avail. It's hollow. It's void. It's without consequence. It's ineffectual. It's useless. And it's without value. If Jesus has not indeed been raised... We gather together in vain, we listen in vain, we strive to apply and obey God's word in vain, and we preach the word to others in vain if Jesus Christ has not been raised. We can study until we're spent, we can write until we're worn out, we can pray until the lights go out, and we can preach until we pass out. We can build large churches, fill gigantic stadiums, send out the most missionaries, and win the masses to our message. But if the tomb isn't empty, we're wasting our time. 
The whole gospel message hinges upon the reality of the resurrection. Just as your physical heart pumps, giving life-giving blood to every other part of your body, so the truth of the resurrection gives life to, to every other part of the gospel. The resurrection is the pivot on which all Christianity turns, and without it, no other truth in your Bible matters much. Without the resurrection, Christianity would be no more than wishful thinking, and it can simply take its place upon the shelf alongside every other human philosophy or religious speculation. If Jesus Christ has not indeed been raised, then our preaching, our message is empty. But secondly, not only is our preaching empty, write this down, our faith is futile. Look at verse 14 again. If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is in vain, Paul writes. Not only is our preaching in vain, not only is our preaching empty, but our faith is in vain as well. Let your eyes drop down for just a moment to verse 17, though. Here Paul uses an even stronger word. When he says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Futile. The original language there behind futile means without profit or fruitless. If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is without profit to you. It's fruitless to you. In other words, apart from the resurrection, our faith is without result. It's like a promise with no fulfillment, like a trip with no destination, like a story with no end, like a seed that produces no crop, like a dream that never comes true, a game with no winners, and a company without a product. It's futile. Our faith is futile unless Christ has been raised. If there is no resurrection from the dead, then what we oftentimes refer to as the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11 should instead be called the hall of the foolish. Consider Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Moses, Rahab, David, and the prophets and all the others who were faithful. They were faithful for nothing. They were mocked, scourged, imprisoned, stoned, afflicted, ill-treated, and put to death completely in vain. All believers of all ages would have believed for nothing, lived for nothing, and died for nothing if Jesus Christ has not been raised. Third, we're misrepresenting God. If Jesus Christ has not been raised from the dead, then we are misrepresenting God. Look at verses 15 and 16 in your Bible there. Paul writes, We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He indeed raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. You catch what Paul is saying here? Paul is saying that if Jesus Christ hasn't been raised, then he and the apostles are found to be false witnesses about God. And so are we. Today, Christians, believers, who testify about a bodily, physical resurrection, we are misrepresenting God, if indeed there is no resurrection from the dead. Because God said there is a resurrection from the dead. God said he raised his son from the dead. If 
there is no resurrection, then the apostles cannot be considered trustworthy. They're not honorable. They're not sincere. They're rather deceivers who have led multiple millions into gross darkness and great error. Furthermore, if there is no resurrection, then the gospel that the apostles preached and the gospel that we subsequently preach today is not only in vain, but it's blasphemy. Because we are making a declaration that is not true. God said it is true. Number four, if Jesus Christ has not been raised, then brothers and sisters, we are dead in our sins. We are still dead in our sins. Look at verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, fruitless, and you are still in your sins. Friends, when when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they died spiritually, and they became instantaneously separated from God. But the infection of sin did not stop there. From that moment forward, every person that has been born into this world was subsequently born spiritually dead and separated from God. It's Ephesians 2.1. You see, Adam served as our federal head. Adam served as our federal head, federal headship. Or the authority to represent descendants is clearly taught in the Bible. It's what it means. Federal headship is the the ability to to represent with authority your descendants. We would say that Adam served as our federal head. And so when Adam, who was in authority, fell, so we in Adam also fell. His sin plunged all humanity after him headlong into sin with all of its consequences. We were born that way. Psalm 51, David tells us, Surely I was sinful from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. We were born into sin, born under the curse, born physically alive but spiritually dead, needing to be born again. John 3. It's true of all of us, without exception. Paul writes of this headship or representative relationship in Romans 5.12. Paul says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, our representative, our federal head, and death reigned through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. And then it's interesting. Just two verses later, Romans 5.14, Paul refers to Adam as a type or a picture of him. Adam is a type or a picture of him who is him, of Jesus. In other words, another representative was coming. Later here in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last or the second Adam, speaking about Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. You see, the first Adam was the father of all men through the flesh. He disobeyed, and all after him, all of his children disobeyed, learned disobedience, inherited death, whereas the last or the second Adam becomes the father of all believers through the Spirit. His obedience was perfect. 
Through him, all his children learn to be obedient to the will of God, and they subsequently inherit life. But all this hinges upon the resurrection. If Jesus Christ has not been raised, then there is no second Adam. If there is no second Adam, then we are still in the first Adam. If we are still in the first Adam, then we are still in our sin. See how important this is? If Jesus is still dead in the ground, if he has not been raised, then we are still dead in our sin. Number five, the fifth consequence is that the dead are damned. The dead are damned. If Jesus Christ has not been raised, then the dead are damned. Look at verse 18. Paul says, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, they have perished. In other words, if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, then all of those who professed faith in Christ and set their lives apart from him, for him are still in the dirt, and that is where they will stay. If that's the case, then we'll never see any of our believing loved ones again. Death is final. It's interesting that the word translated perished in your Bible there. The Greek word means utterly destroyed. If Christ has not been raised, then those who have fallen asleep, those who have believed upon Christ, will be utterly destroyed because there is no resurrection for them and there is no resurrection subsequently for us. And you ask, why will the dead be destroyed? Well, remember just one verse prior, verse 17, Paul says, if Christ hasn't been raised, then we're still in our sins and the wages of sin is death. Lastly, Paul playing the devil's advocate here in verse 19, if Christ has not been raised, then we of all people are most pitied. We are the most pitiable people. Look at verse 19. Paul says, if in Christ we have hope only in this life, we of all people are most to be pitied. If we have hoped for a future resurrection, but there is no future resurrection, then we have believed, and all who have believed before us are most to be pitied. The original word there is miserable. We of all people are the most miserable. If Jesus has not been literally and bodily raised from the dead, then there is no meaning to life under the sun. Eat, drink, be merry, and die. There's no resurrection. There'd be absolutely no advantage to being a Christian if the dead aren't raised. In fact, there would be every disadvantage in the world. Why? Because we would suffer the loss not only of the future, but also of the past and present. Because none of it matters. None of it matters. You see what Paul does here? He answers the question, what if? What if Christ hasn't been raised? And then he plays the devil's advocate for just a moment. But you have to understand that in Jesus' day, there was a whole subsection of individuals who did not believe in a bodily, physical resurrection of the dead. 
in your Bible, particularly in the Gospels, you will run across this group of people, the Sadducees. We oftentimes would say that they are sad, you see, because they did not believe in a future resurrection of the dead. And so they were sad, you see. What Paul has done here is he's taken us to the edge of despair and he allows us to peer over its edge. But now, now what Paul does is he pivots gloriously. He pivots our gaze to the epic grandeur of the reality of the resurrection. That Christ has been gloriously, physically, and bodily raised from the dead and that we, who by faith have received him, will follow suit. Friends, that truth has implications that our finite minds this side of eternity can scarcely comprehend. We sing songs like, Up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph over his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain, and he lives forever with his saints to reign. That's what we have to look forward to, brothers and sisters. Reigning together with Christ, as co-heirs with Christ. He arose, he arose, hallelujah, he arose. Let's take what time we have left this morning and talk about the hope-filled reality of the resurrection. Paul answers the what-if question, and the answer's dismal. The answer's catastrophic. But Christ has been raised from the dead. The tomb is empty. He arose victorious over sin and death. He reigns today. He is our risen, ruling reigning, soon-returning king. He mediates for us. He's our great high priest. He's our advocate today in heaven. When we sin as believers, those having been clothed in Christ's righteousness, when we sin, when we miss the mark of God's glory, the Son turns to the Father and says, paid for in full. It's what it means to be an advocate. He speaks on our behalf. He pleads on our behalf because of his righteousness credited to our account by faith. Let's talk about the hope-filled reality of the resurrection. If Christ has indeed been raised, as he has, write this down, then preaching is the most momentous activity in the world. Preaching is the most momentous activity in the world. As a matter of fact, the Word is alive. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It pierces, it cuts, it divides between joint and marrow, soul and spirit. It has transformative power. As the Word of God is rightly divided and is proclaimed among people, God's Spirit employs that preaching and uses it in the hearts and lives of people to bring about faith, regenerating faith. And when believers sitting in pews on Sunday mornings hear the Word of God rightly divided, proclaimed, and preached, God uses it by the Spirit, ministering it to the hearts of the people to grow them, to change them, to sanctify them to nourish them, to feed them. Jesus feeds his sheep, and he does it by preaching, by faithful, biblical preaching. 
Preaching is the most momentous activity in the world. There is not a message that rivals the gospel in terms of its power. It is the gospel faithfully preached that God has ordained to bring about regeneration, to bring about saving faith. Paul reminds us in Romans 10, 17, he says, faith comes by what? Hearing. Hearing what? Hearing the word of Christ. But it's also the gospel faithfully preached that God has ordained to bring about sanctification or growth in Christ in the life of a believer. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. He says, all scripture is theos neustos. God breathed. Breathed out by God. All scripture. And it's useful or it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. That the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. God uses his word faithfully preached to bring about regeneration and saving faith and to bring about sanctification, growth, and change in the Christian life. We come to saving faith by the preaching or the hearing of the word and we grow in faith by the preaching and the application of the word. Let me encourage you to join us. The next five weeks, we're going to be expositing five texts that undergird the solas or the alones. Next week, I'll be preaching from 2 Timothy 3.16 that God's word alone is sufficient, is powerful, is authoritative. I would encourage you to come back as we unpack that text. Number one, if Christ has been raised and preaching is the most momentous activity in the world, number two, our faith is grounded in a living Savior. Because Christ reigns today in heaven, gloriously resurrected from the dead, our faith is grounded in a living Savior. Look at verse 20. Paul says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. There are two words in verse 20 that I just love. I love the imagery uh, that Paul uses. I, I love the brush with which he paints in verse 20. The two words that I want to highlight for you this morning are the words first fruits and a short phrase fallen asleep. First fruits and fallen asleep. First of all, there is a beautiful reality in the imagery of first fruits. You see, in the Old Testament, specifically in Leviticus chapter 23, a sheaf or a bundle of grain or barley representing the first fruits of the annual harvest, were waved by the priest before the Lord on the day following the Sabbath after the Passover. So on Sunday, following the Passover. And as the priest waved the sheaf, or waved the bundle of the first fruits to the Lord, it was a sign to the Lord that the whole harvest belonged to him. It's yours, Lord. The whole harvest. Here's the first fruits but the whole harvest belongs to you. Keep that picture in mind for just a second and fast forward to the New Testament. We refer to last Sunday, the Sunday before Easter, as Palm Sunday. But do you know that's not originally what it was called? We refer to it as Palm Sunday. But originally, it was known as Lamb Selection Day. 
Just as throngs of people were flooding into Jerusalem from all over Israel, hundreds of thousands of lambs were being brought into Jerusalem in preparation for the Passover. Josephus, who was a a biblical historian, a Jewish historian, wrote that in one census, over 250,000, a quarter million lambs were brought into Jerusalem in preparation for the Passover. Here's the interesting thing, friends. Is just as Jesus entered Jerusalem, we refer to that as the triumphal entry, right? Jesus is riding on the back of the colt into Jerusalem. His triumphal entry, he was literally surrounded by hundreds of thousands of other lambs. Four days later, as those lambs were being sacrificed in celebration of the Passover, on the other side of town, hanging on a cross, was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Back to the first fruits imagery here in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul refers to Jesus as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You see, just as the Old Testament priest presented the first fruits of the harvest to the Lord on the day after the Sabbath, so Jesus, the Lamb of God, was resurrected on the day after the Sabbath as God's first fruits assurance that we also shall be raised one day as a part of a future harvest. I love that. I love that imagery. I love that picture. Just as Jesus Christ was raised as a, as a first fruits. So it was a declaration by God that there will be a whole slew of believers that will follow suit, a whole harvest of believers that will one day be raised in glorious resurrection. You see, in this sense, the resurrection of Christ serves as a pledge that there will be a future harvest of those who will also be raised from the dead. There's not a redeemed body that has decomposed that will not be recomposed at the resurrection. Let that settle in for just a second. There is not a decomposed body on the face of the planet that will not be completely and perfectly recomposed at the resurrection. That means every Christian that's been eaten by fish. That means every Christian that has been burned at the stake and ashes blown with the wind. will be recomposed. What hope? What hope? That's why David could say over and over and over again in the Psalms, what can mortal man do to me? All you can do is take my life. I have a wonderful, glorious future hope, a resurrection reality hope. Go ahead. Go ahead. Because everything that decomposes will be recomposed. The resurrection. First fruits. Now this short phrase, fallen asleep here. I again love the language that Paul uses in verse 20. He says that all who have died in Christ have simply fallen asleep in Christ. Track with me here for a second. I don't want to lose you in the specifics, but this is glorious and I love it. The Greek word for fallen asleep there, it's two words in English, fallen asleep, one word in the original language, koimao. And it refers to either a natural sleep, so a sleeping person, or that of physical death. But it is only used in the Bible 
of the death in reference to a believer. Koimao, to fall asleep, is only used of the death of believers in the Bible. Interestingly enough, there's a related Greek word, koimateria. Uh, graveyard would probably be the, the best translation. It's where we get our English word cemetery. Koimateria, cemetery. Why is that? Did you know that, that the idea of cemetery or sleeping is a distinctively Christian idea? That's why we name them cemeteries. Because Christians have held, have declared that all that is there in the ground is the shell. All that is there in the ground is the body. The soul, the moment that, that we breathe life's final breath, departs and is instantaneously in paradise. Conscious bliss, paradise with our Father. But we await the day when Jesus returns in the clouds and he calls his bride home. 1 Thessalonians 4. And he raises from the dead all those who have believed and were in Christ. Reuniting resurrection body with spirit. Paul says, we groan for that day. We wait for that day. All creation groans to be made new. We as believers, we long for that day. We long to be set free from this earth suit, which is, which is not free, this side of eternity, from the encumbrance of sin. We've been freed in Christ as believers from, from sin's penalty because Jesus bore it for us. We've been freed from sin's power. We no longer have to sin. Brothers and sisters, do you know that every time we sin as believers, it is conscious and willful? Sin is no longer our master. Sin no longer has dominion over us. We sin because we want to sin. But what we have not yet been freed from is the presence of sin. And to that we say, come Lord Jesus, come. Return in your glorious timing and set us free from the presence of sin once and for all. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. You see, our faith is not in vain because the object of our faith, the person of our faith is alive is alive. Our faith is grounded in a living Savior. Number three, write this down. Because Christ is risen, our sin has been atoned for and we've been washed whiter than snow. Look at verse 21. For as by death, or as by man came death, and by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Friends, let me get your attention for just a moment. If God holds our sin against us, we've all sinned. Everyone without exception falls under the class or the category of sinner. And if God holds our sin against us, then we have no hope. We have no hope. You see, the foundation for every other blessing from God is that God will not hold our sins against us. Everything hangs on forgiveness. And so you ask yourself the question, well, then how is the resurrection connected to our forgiveness? Isn't it the death of Christ that takes away our sin? Well, yes. But the connection with the resurrection is vitally important. 
turn over in your Bible for just a second. Keep a, a pen or something there in 1 Corinthians 15, but turn over to Romans 4.25 for just a moment. I want to show this to you. Romans 4.25. Paul says this, speaking about Jesus. He was handed over, that is handed over to death, on account of our transgressions. So yes, the death of Christ does take away our sin, but there's a connection with the resurrection here. He was handed over to death on account of our transgressions, and he was raised on account of our justification. He was resurrected on account of our justification. You know what justification means? It's one of those eight-cylinder Christian words that's very important for you to know. To be justified means to be, to be declared innocent, to be declared not guilty. It's not that you are innocent. It's not that you are not guilty. It's that in Christ, he declares you not guilty. He justifies you on the basis of his perfect merit, his perfect righteousness credited to your and my otherwise bankrupt account. It's the glorious exchange. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him, in Christ, not in Adam, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. By his death, he paid for our sins, and he purchased our acquittal, our justification, and our forgiveness. And since the achievement of the cross was so complete, and the work of justification so decisive, God raised Jesus from the dead to vindicate our forgiveness, to vindicate his son's righteousness, and to apply the work of justification. Wow. Friends, I hope you love theology. I hope you love theology. To know your Bible, to learn your Bible, to understand your Bible, to apply the Bible to your life. Consider Jesus' last words from the cross, John 19, 30. Jesus said, it is finished. And he hung his head and gave up his spirit. What is finished, you ask? Well, if Jesus doesn't raise from the dead, then he is finished. The story is over, and we're still in our sins. That's why the resurrection is all important. You see, Easter, Easter is God's amen to Good Fridays, it is finished. You catch that? Easter is God's amen to Good Fridays, it is finished. Jesus cried out, it is finished. God said amen and raised him from the dead. And because he is alive forevermore, we can know that our sins are forgiven forever in him, paid for in him. Look at number four. Because Christ has been raised from the dead, we have an unwavering hope that it is not death to die. It is not death to die. I am the resurrection of uh, uh, of, of life, Jesus said. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Look at verse 22, back in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verse 22, Paul says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ the second Adam shall all be made alive. You see, in his resurrection, Jesus defeated and triumphed over 
the last enemy. That is death itself. This doesn't mean that we won't die physically, but it does mean that we won't die eternally. And that's really good news. This gives us great hope. It removes the the fear of death, knowing that we will pass directly from this fallen world into the conscious paradise of Christ. And there we will once and for all be free of every encumbrance of sin to worship Jesus forever. Death no longer has a sting. Paul tells us that our citizenship is in heaven. We're simply strangers and aliens. We're just passing through. Our citizenship is in heaven. And we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will come and who will transform our lowly bodies. This is resurrection language, Philippians chapter 3. We're waiting for the Lord Jesus Christ to come and transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the same power that enables Him to subject everything to himself. Brothers and sisters, don't lose heart. Living, living this side of eternity is difficult. Living in a Genesis 3 fallen world can be discouraging at times. Being redeemed, having been given a new nature and a new heart, but yet still residing in this sinful flesh, in this earth suit, can sometimes be discouraging. Brothers and sisters, don't lose heart. Keep on keeping on. Fight. Jesus' return to reclaim his bride is just as certain as his own resurrection. I mean, Jesus tells us, he says, this Jesus, speaking about himself, who was taken up from you will return for you in the same way you saw him go into heaven. And his return, oh, his glorious return, will be to rid the world of every last particle of sin and to make all things new, even you. Even you. What hope we have. No more sin, no more death, no more pain, no more tears. This is why we can say with Paul, to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. Gain. Spurgeon once said this, Charles Spurgeon, he said, This is of noble encouragement to all the saints. Die they must, but rise they shall. And though in their case they shall see corruption, yet they shall rise to everlasting life. Jesus Christ's resurrection is the cause, the earnest, the guarantee, and the emblem of the rising of all his people. Let them therefore go to their graves as to their beds, only to rise again. What hope? Lastly this morning, because Jesus Christ is raised, we as believers of all people are most blessed. We're not to be pitied. We're most blessed. Immeasurably blessed in Christ. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, that we've been raised up with Christ, seated with him in the heavenly places. Titus 3, 7, we've been justified by his grace that we might become heirs, heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Think about the well-loved lyrics. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know that he holds the future. Life is worth the living just because he lives. 
Because Jesus Christ has been raised and is alive and reigns as our king forever, all of our obedience, all of our love, all of our self-denial, it's not just not to be pitied, but it is positively even enviable. Paul said in his second letter to the church at Corinth, he said, For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that far surpasses it all. Life is difficult, fraught with challenges, fraught with discouragements, death. Paul says, suffering for the name of Christ. Paul says it's all worth it because God is using it to prepare for you an eternal weight of glory that our finite minds can scarcely comprehend this side of the grave. Matter of fact, Paul ends this glorious chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, on the resurrection with these words. He says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord, your work in the Lord, your striving in the Lord is not in vain. It's not in vain. We're not pitied. We are blessed, immeasurably blessed, because Jesus Christ, our risen, ruling, reigning, soon returning King, sits in heaven and mediates for us today. Brothers and sisters, hear this. Jesus Christ, the one whom we worship in spirit and truth, he is the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He is the keeper and the creator of all. He always was, always is, and always will be unmoved, unchanging, undefeated, and never undone. He was bruised and brought healing. He was pierced and eased pain. He was persecuted and brought freedom. He was dead and brought life. He is risen and brings power. He reigns and brings peace. The world can't understand him. Armies can't defeat him. Schools can't explain him. And leaders cannot ignore him. Herod couldn't kill him. The Pharisees couldn't confuse him. And the people could not hold him. Neither could Nero crush him. The new age cannot replace him. And Oprah can't explain him away. He is the wisdom of the wise, the power of the powerful, ancient of days, the ruler of rulers, the leader of leaders, the overseer and sovereign Lord over all that is and was and is to come. He is light, love, longevity, and Lord. He is goodness, kindness, gentleness, and God. He is holy, righteous, mighty, powerful, and pure. His ways are always right. His word is eternal. His will is unchanging. His mind is is always fixed. He is our redeemer. He is our savior. He is our peace. He is our joy. He is our guide. He is our comfort. He is our risen, ruling, reigning, soon returning king. Is he yours? Do you know this Jesus by faith? You're here this morning and you've never received Christ by faith and become a new creation, I need to warn you. Hear me, friends. I need to warn you that you too will be resurrected one day. That it will be to a resurrection of judgment and condemnation. Jesus, these words are in red in your Bible. John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29 said this. He said, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. No one. No one. None. Nada. Zip. Zilch. Will get to heaven without bowing before and receiving the resurrected 
Christ. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Will you be in the resurrection of life or will you be in the resurrection of judgment? No one in the first resurrection will be lost and no one in the second resurrection will be saved. What resurrection will you be in, brothers and sisters? Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning. We come to you just adoring you. We come to you ascribing to you the glory that is due your great name. And we know that you hear us. We know that we serve a living Savior who is not confined to the clods of this earth, but who is risen in power and seated at the right hand of his Father in heaven. Help us with our lives to magnify him, to make much of him, to love him with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, and with all of our strength, and to spend and be spent for his sake and the gospel's sake until we draw life's final breath. And all God's people said, Amen.